0: Um let's go ahead and get started. Um, let's just start with prayer. That's always a good place to start. Yes. Let's pray together. Gracious God, for everyone assembled here, I give you deep thanks for this church community that is alive with your loving grace. I give you deep thanks. And I ask that you would bless our time together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, friends. So a housekeeping thing first. I feel like we've got a good thing going. Um, And so I am going to find something else to talk about for the next few Sundays in this place. I think what we may look at are what we call the essential tenets of the reform faith. And we'll do a different one every Sunday. And so that means if you miss a Sunday, that's okay. Just come on in. But um, I feel like I am the better uh, and I'm growing from doing the work that goes into this. So we're just going to keep going for a while, okay? So I just want you to know that we'll be here, and you're welcome, and I'm so glad you've come. Uh, so today we're going to talk about the book of Revelation. If you were hoping we're going to read uh, from the book of Revelation, we are not. You can do that on your own time, but what I hope to do is give you an overview and a framework work so that when you go to the book, you have a starting point from how you might understand it. So before I begin by a show of hands, how many people have ever heard a sermon taken from the book of Revelation? <laughs> I am guessing that it was probably the part about a new heaven and a new earth, most likely. No, Stephanie, tell me what you've heard. All right, <laughs> I gotcha. You've heard about destruction and hell in the fiery place. Yeah, okay. All good. Well, um, our for those who are lectionary preachers, which are a set of biblical texts that the World Council of Churches puts out to preach on, there are only one or two times in the three-year cycle where anything comes up from Revelation. When you pair that with the fact that each Sunday there are at least four readings you can choose from, we generally don't hear a lot about it. Um The book is often misunderstood. I have always felt as someone who didn't really grow up in the church and came to the Bible that the Bible is actually difficult to understand in places. Um, Some of it is very simple, like Jesus's command to care for others. But some of it, like Revelation, it helps to have some kind of educational and contextual background. And it's written to a very specific time and to a very specific people. I don't think it was ever intended to have the number 144,000 pulled out and told that that was the, you know, the number of people who can only get into heaven. That was not the intent. And so this book, maybe more than any other, um, needs some context to begin. So the book gets its name. Um, from the Greek apocalyptos, which means an uncovering or unveiling. Um, This book is apocalyptic literature. And you're familiar with tropes, yes? So like if you're going to read a mystery, you know that certain things will probably happen. If you're going to read a romance novel, you're counting on the happy ending, or at least I am. Um, There are certain genres have certain structure. And so apocalyptic literature is much the same. And we see apocalyptic literature in different places in the Bible, most notably the book of Daniel, which has a vision of Daniel in the fiery furnace. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego are there with him. Um, And so that is apocalyptic literature. And when it would have been read At the time or shared orally beforehand, when it began, everyone would have known, oh, we are talking not about a narrative, but about an apocalyptic vision. Um, That word, apocalyptos, we also see in Matthew's gospel. Matthew talks a lot about things that are uncovered and things that are revealed in Jesus Christ. But I think most notably, you see it in. Paul's conversion. Paul himself and then Luke in Acts talk about that road to Damascus experience as an apocalypse. It is an unveiling, right? Scales are removed from his eyes and suddenly he sees Christ in the world in a new way. This book is also a prophecy because prophecies like Isaiah and Jeremiah They speak to a particular context and they would have been spoken for a particular reason. So most of the prophets would speak words of prophecy, things that God had told them so that the people would turn to God and also to offer them hope. This book in particular is a book of hope. Yes, it's not written the way I want to read a book of hope, (laughs) but that is what it is. So let's talk a little bit about why hope was needed at this time. The time when it was actually um, written down is of course disputed. Some consider it would have been as early as 54 to 68 common era. That was when Nero was the emperor in the Roman empire. Most likely though, it was written between 81 and 96 under the reign of Domitian. Either way, the presenting problem is that in the Roman Empire at this time, there was emperor worship, right? They believed that the Caesar was actually a god. They had to pledge allegiance to the leader and then worship him as god. So there would have been shrines and places of worship for the emperor. Now, at this time, there's no official historical record of state-sponsored persecution, right? There are times in the Holy Roman Empire uh, where there is state persecution. Um, That's not what we see at this time. But this book is written to the churches in Asia Minor. So think um, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, uh, Thyatira, Sardis, Laodicea, and in Asia Minor at that time, there was social persecution. So what that means is that if you were a part of the Christian tradition, then you were cast out, set aside, looked down upon by the whole society. It's also important to realize at this time that emperor worship, if you didn't engage in that, you were considered to not be a good citizen. And that's a huge deal because you want to be a good citizen because then you're protected by certain laws and uh, protected by the empire. So if you are not a good citizen, not only do all of your friends and neighbors look at you funny in the grocery store, but you're not protected. If your city is sacked by someone else, you're not going to be the first person they care about because you haven't pledged allegiance and worship the emperor. And so this book is written specifically to those seven cities and the churches there in Asia Minor. Um, okay, so Jews at the time in this area were offered an exemption because theirs was an ancient religion. Yes, Judaism um, and their worship of the one God existed well before the Roman empire. And so they're given an exemption. So the problem then becomes, do the Christians at that time, do they try to convince everyone that they're just a smaller sect of Judaism? Well, there are problems with that, right? Because they're not, they are believing in Christ as God, in a whole new way they're actually something totally different and not only that the jews didn't want them <laughs> right and the jews aren't interested in claiming them as a sect so that's not going to work um another thing that happens is that if they go out on their own and they say that they are their own religion then you have all of the problems of social isolation and citizenry and they then become really a source of trouble for the empire. Okay, so um, they uh, are trying very hard to establish themselves as their own religion, and they are suffering for it in this area. So to that, we come to John, who is imprisoned on the Isle of Patmos. Um, Early church fathers thought that it was the same John who was the son of Zebedee, Um, And that was accepted for a very long time. As you might imagine, there's no real way to prove that. Um, We also don't know why he's imprisoned, but we have to imagine that if Asia Minor is experiencing persecution because of Christianity and you have a disciple, an apostle there, he's probably gonna end up jailed. Um, And so that has just been the accepted um, situation that um, John is imprisoned on the Isle of Patmos because he has been zealous for his faith. Um, John receives a vision and he makes clear to say that he receives a vision on the Lord's day, that this vision is connected to Jesus Christ intimately. Um, And the form we find in the other apocalyptic literature. So these are lots of them are in the Apocrypha. If you have um, a Bible with your Apocryphal texts, there are things like Ezra, Baruch, the Testament of Levi and the Testament of Abraham. These are all pieces of literature where someone claims to have a vision from God that is to be spoken to the people at that time. And they're all as weird as any vision you might imagine. Um, Most um, apocalypse, apocalyptic literature was always written under a fake name. Um, Usually they use the patriarchs of the faith. That's why we have the Testament of Levi and the Testament of Abraham. Um, John uses his own name to communicate that his vision is current. This isn't an ancient text. This is John that many of them may have known who is now imprisoned and who has this vision. Um, And so that also makes it a prophecy because his word is for the people, um, a word of hope. So one of the first issues that John has, and we see this in the first five chapters of the book is how do you establish your authority? Right? So, If you've ever done any public speaking, you know that you have to establish your own credibility. Um, So I may have some credibility in this context. If I go to Brian's office and start talking about roofing, none, no credibility, nobody listens. And so John wants to establish not so much that he is a disciple because they, they may know him or know of him, but he wants to establish that he's had this vision and that it is credible. And so he spends the first five chapters doing that. Um, and the first is by naming specifically the communities he's speaking to, because these are the communities who would have heard of John, the apostle. Um, he talks about a, um, throne room vision, and that is specifically in chapters four and five. And what he does there is that in that vision that he has, He is with the heavenly host worshiping God, and he is a very small part of that. And that is John's way of letting his readers know that he is humble, that he knows that he is at best a messenger for God, and that he doesn't conflate himself in any way with Jesus Christ or the heavenly host. That's what that whole throne room vision hopes to point out. And then we begin what are called the vision cycles, which I will sum up chapters six through 20. You see what I did there? All those chapters right there. (laughs) But that's because there's a lot of repetition. All of the vision cycles loop back around each other. So you may be in one vision cycle about the destruction of the seven seals, but when you go to the next one, it will hearken back. So folks who take apocalyptic literature and read it as a like narrative, in historical time, never meant to be that way because those stories are looping back around to each other. But what we see in chapter six through 20 are what are called vision and destructive cycles. And basically what we have is kind of that epic battle of good and evil. Um, Good is the virtuous bride of Christ. Bad is the whore of Babylon which is the whore of Babylon and the beast, those are the personification of evil. And so when the vision cycles talk about the destruction that the beast is causing, he's speaking to that community who is feeling that they are being destroyed right in their own community. And so that kind of spiritual warfare and that kind of pain would have been something that they really responded to at that time. Now, what's interesting is that interspersed within each of these cycles are always scenes of salvation, always scenes of worship. And if I were to tell you one thing that the whole book of Revelation is about, one thing to remember, it is saying to a hurting church community, the battle's already been won. Don't worry so much. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, will have final victory. I have seen it. You don't have to have all that anxiety and worry. Live your life as faithfully as you can. And that's the overarching message here. You know, what's the greatest kind of narrative cycle of all of Christianity? Yes, it's that idea of birth and death and new life. And we see that here we see destruction and hope and the knowledge that Jesus Christ reigns anyway and will continue to reign into the future. So I I guess I'm done, but no, I'll continue. There's a lot. Um, one of the ways that this text has been, I think, um, used to denigrate people is this text has been used, especially the Whore of Babylon imagery, in a lot of ways to denigrate women without, you know, holding up the idea that we also have the Bride of Christ. But that idea that there's either the Whore of Babylon or the Bride of Christ and nothing in between has been used to subjugate women for a very long time. There are passages in here and all of the destruction that some have used to advocate violence. That violence is necessary. See, it's right in the Bible. There's warfare there. But I think what you have to realize about these scenes of destruction and violence is that they're descriptive, they're not proscriptive. Do you know what I mean? John isn't saying, go out and do these things. He's saying, it feels like this, but we have hope in Jesus Christ. And that is a very different thing than using any of this imagery in order to justify violence. Um, so there's 14 chapters, um, verses 21 and 22 is what we most often see, um, in the, um, in the lectionary, which is the final new creation. The idea that the lamb has had victory and that we as a faith community can rest in the knowledge that Jesus Christ reigns and that Jesus Christ will create a new community of faith, the new creation, a new heaven and a new earth. Um, There are parts of Revelation where we see that even the violence that is described offends God. When the person of John in his vision, in one of those cycles where he sees the destruction and then stands before God in worship, we see that the violence and destruction offends God. And that should really be the message we take about the violence that we see in here. But always the Lamb of God prevails. So we have Revelation, John specifically, calling on the faith community to remain faithful in difficulty. I think um, what has been uh, helpful and edifying for me in getting ready for this is that I bring my own anxiety into every day, right? And it helps to remember that the battle has already been won, if we're going to use that imagery, (laughs) that, you know, Christ reigns. And so maybe I don't need to carry all that anxiety the way the new churches did. It's also interesting because John would say that we are at our best when we worship together. When we are assembled in God's presence and we worship God, that is the best of humanity. And I don't know about you, but that's a message that's particularly poignant for me as the community slowly starts to come back together. Um, where do I want to go from here? Any questions before we begin? Or I'm sorry, before I continue. There's a lot of talk about numbers um, and uh, in the book of Revelation. So I mentioned the 144,000, which Brian reminded me, I didn't even have to look it up. He just remembered, Um, right? It's a tenet of the Jehovah's witness face, the faith that there are 12,000 people allowed from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And so there will only be 144,000 redeemed people who are allowed into God's presence after life, which is a very low number, a very low number. And Most commentaries will tell you that the numbers that are used signal completeness in a way. So there are certain numbers from the Hebrew tradition in the Old Testament that are brought into the New Testament that signal a completeness. So when numbers are used, it's the idea that it's not that there will be 144,000 redeemed. It's that there will be redemption in a complete way that we cannot imagine or visualize now. The only place where a number is directly related to a particular thing, you wanna guess? You've gotta know, 666, right? Which in numerology at that time was the name of the emperor. So the beast, right? Who is wreaking havoc on the faithful is directly related to the empire and the havoc that it is wreaking on the faith community. Um, Yes, (laughs) I'm just kidding. (laughs) Um, I want to talk about some theological themes that we see. Um, The first is Babylon. Um, Babylon, in particular, um, signifies the arrogance and the opulence and the violence of the empire at that time. That's what it signifies. Whenever you hear about Babylon, those are all of the negative things about the Roman empire and how they impinge on the people of faith at that time. Um, those traits certainly resemble the empire, but they're also traits that people uh, have, have um, pointed out in some of the Old Testament texts, right? So Daniel's apocalyptic literature Right? That whole book is about him being faithful in Nebuchadnezzar's court. So, that kind of idea of Babylon is about all of those systems that oppress with empire. Um, We also see the beast, the seven headed beast, who is an agent of Satan. Um, And what's interesting, I think, is that the beast rules by violence, but it also rules by economic control which I think is that kind of for the people in Asia Minor who are being cut out of the marketplace because they won't do emperor worship, who are being cut out of their communities, they understand that very clearly. Um, But it's interesting to think that it's not just violence. It's also controlling people economically and what they are able to get to survive. The beast is overthrown, though, thrown into a lake of fire. Um, There's a lot of conquering. There's a lot of killing. There's a lot of oppressing. But Christ also conquers, but he does it through his own self-sacrifice. And that is always the model for us, I would say, as Christians. There is, you know, a violent overthrowing. Anyone who would have heard this at the time it was written would know intimately that kind of threat of being overthrown. There was constant war at this time as the empire tried to expand. Um, But we are a people who believe the battle is won, but it's won through Christ's self-sacrifice, not in any other way. We see the theme of creation. um, And we see that (laughs) empire uh, seeks to bring an end to the world as God has created it. Um, And so... This is actually a theme that is used in some contemporary discussions of earth care, right? The care of creation um, and our desire to care for the world as God called us to. We see a lot of justice. There are a lot of uh, martyrs in the book of Revelation, um, and they are always redeemed in those worship cycles as we see them. There's a lot of conversation about the Lamb of God, and I think that's significant because we've talked about Christ in different ways in the New Testament, but the imagery of all of this violence and destruction, but Christ as a Lamb, that really speaks on its own, that idea of self-sacrifice that we see there. And then lastly, we see, well, maybe not lastly, um, the New Jerusalem that we have had the Jerusalem where people worshiped and then Jesus Christ came into the world. John Calvin said that when Christ came into the world, the worship of God was no longer confined to one place, but Christ is with us. And so we gather to worship the assembled body, but that we're called to worship in every moment of our lives. The new Jerusalem is the idea of the second coming that in some way, Christ will come again and make a Jerusalem that is as it is supposed to be. And we see a lot of the imagery from Genesis in the discussion of the new Jerusalem. There's a lot of Satan. Again, uh, you know, my grandmother asked me what I learned about Satan in seminary and I had to say nothing. We didn't study a whole lot about him. Um, In the Old Testament, Satan is best described as the tempter. It is one of the heavenly court who God uses in order to make God's people more faithful. Um, In this book in particular, and in the letters, the epistles, Satan is the personification of evil. Um, Not necessarily cloven hoof walking around on the earth, but the personification of evil that we all experience due to human sinfulness and that sort of thing. All right, that's a lot of me talking at you. Questions, comments? Yes! You can always count on Willie. Always. Yes, sir. Please.
1: Did John have his own private stenographer? Did John have his own way of from Petmos to Asia Minor or wherever? Sure. Distribution, my
0: question. So uh, the idea is that yes, he's got a lot of time in jail. And so he did some writing. That's, I think, the, the, concepted, the accepted thing. Um, and then I think there is, and this is all um, what's called extra textual. Do you know what I mean? It's what they think happened. Um, and then there's the idea that the faithful were still coming to visit John. And so they take it back out to the churches in Asia Minor. Can't confirm it in the historical record, I don't think. But I would probably need to do some more research on that
1: yeah people what else really mentioning that because they went to those churches yes or
0: I find it really difficult to read but I'm also the person who you know when I became a new Christian I just picked up the Bible and started reading it and I got halfway through Leviticus and I was like if I have to hear about one more animal being slain I'm going to just like give up the ghost um, so I find that And it's also super confusing. Um, I find it helpful to have a detailed outline that summarizes the passages while I'm reading it. And I've got one for you that I can email you if you'd like. But I do love the language of a new heaven and a new earth and that the battle is already won Um, because those are the things that give me hope, Roy. You know what I mean? Um, I I don't know that I find hope in the idea that um, there is evil in the world and that it causes pain, but I find a lot of hope in the idea that Christ has already won whatever needs to be won um, in that vision of a new heaven and a new earth. So I also probably hadn't read it in years until I was getting ready for this class. <laughs> so, yes. Okay. So the Lion. No, no, no. So the, I think the Lion of Judah is so interesting because um, it was only in the time of Christ that people looked back on Daniel's story and said, Oh, this is the Lion of Judah. Um right, yes. And so, but what I'm saying is that at the time it was written and shared with the hebrew people they did not have an idea of the lion of judah as the messiah but it is in looking back and we are connecting the dots of christ through that um through the stories of the old testament that the lion of judah so i do think that i think the lion of judah in daniel is the spirit of christ and i think the lamb of god is the same um does that help Yes, ma'am. Oh,
1: it's the royal intent for me, right? So I'm curious, when we read this now, we are confused, right? Like I don't know what we probably think about this. It's so clear to When he wrote it, would they have found it quite as mysterious and
0: practically find it? I think yes. But here's what I love about what would have been their tradition at the time. There were two things. One is that in Judaism, which is what all of this was birthed from right? Scripture was not so much a, um, he said it, I read it, it should be that way. It was something to talk about. It was something to ruminate over. So there's this Jewish tradition of scripture being a let me share this with my community and let's chew on it a while. Um, that's where we get midrash from, right? All these rabbis who take a story and say, here's what I think it is. Um, in addition to that, we have that what greco uh, roman idea of um, reasoning things out in the public sphere. So I don't think that it would have been like, obviously this is what John means. Um, but I do think it would have been something that they talked about um, and they discussed and they found hope and made these connections. Which is actually, I think, a tradition we should revitalize, right? The idea that um, all scripture is life-giving and what it gives for me in my life might be different from you. And so if we chew on it together, um, it becomes much richer and probably closer to what Christ meant for us. What else? Yes, sir. Not very. Um, It would have been a matter of finding someone who can read it orally and translate it, but memory was significant. So memorizing parts, books, chapters, if not the whole thing would have been hugely important. And maybe something we should revitalize. Just saying, it's not just for my Baptist grandmother to give me candy, um, but it's the and that's also the idea that once it gets inside of you, it starts to have take on new meaning too.
1: Generally thought of happening
0: in time or something. No, thank you for asking that. Um, no. Uh, apocalyptic literature is always temporally in time in something a complete another dimension like our dreams often are and it's also um, but it's always rooted in the context so temporally it's something other but it's rooted in the context of the people at that time I forgot to say that Jeff mm-hmm. Stephanie yeah, I'm, not, uh, reading that question.
1: I'm curious to how or where yeah. Sort of the fear factor of the Christian faith, right? In some in certain traditions, uh, and I think that was why the why was in you
0: through we watch this 70s movie. You know, oh, I don't, I'm gonna be uh, looking it up on YouTube. But I don't you remember this scene in there where the Catholic priest is being put to death
1: because suddenly he realized he's been left behind and he got it all wrong. And some other Christians of the day. And it's terrifying. The whole thing is just like, ah! Yeah, the horror movie, basically, that this is going to turn into. I remember how the series of books that came out in maybe the 90s. Yes, remember this? Uh, I'm gonna see it. The Left of Life series was. And so I'm curious. A, it, it, I think in all of this, and maybe I'm wrong, but the motivation was let's save souls, right? Let's, let's fossilize and change people's lives through fear
0: so we talked last week about good old hell and um we really see emphasis on hell when christianity became the state religion and around the fourth or fifth century we go out to convert the barbarians right and so it's the old carrot and the stick the carrot is heaven The stick is hell, and some people like to use a stick more than a carrot. Um, And so we really see all that stuff about hell, and where's the best place you can go for imagery about that? The book of Revelation. The early church reformer, Martin Luther, thought that it shouldn't be in the canon, thought it was too difficult to understand, that it was too contextual, and that the message of hope was clouded out by the destructive cycles right? Um, But I think it is about what people consider saving souls and evangelism. And the question is, do you think the, I don't have any way of saying this is to show my own bias, right? Um, What do you think is more persuasive, fear of hell or the attraction of God's transforming and self-giving love? Um, And so I think there are cycles in history, right? And that one when we were going out and conquering people and telling them they had to be Christians, that was what was used, so that's where it really kind of took off. I do think the Puritans picked it back up with a vengeance. Think, do we see any message of salvation through redemption,
1: through the turning of the prophets?
0: This feels like a whole I'm not sure I understand the question. Could you ask it a different way? <laughs> and
1: the message is um, you know, you have, you've drifted. come back to my work. This doesn't feel like it's a call to redemption the same way. To, I, you
0: okay, say? so it's not a call to repentance. Yes. So, yes, I do think there's a lot of the Old, Tes- uh, the Old Testament prophets that it's a call to repentance. They are worshiping idols or they're doing this or that. And their hope, uh, there's also hope there for them also. I know the plans I have for you talking about the whole of Israel. No, we don't see as much of a call to repentance. We see a call to trust and continue being faithful, despite all of the cultural things around them that are making it challenging.
1: And so, is there in this a. Is there a. I, 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 I.
0: <laughs> but if you talk, I don't have to. <laughs> um,
1: so, so, Tara, do you think that the end, there is an end time, there is obliteration, and there is destruction?
0: No, but I do believe in the second coming. And let me say that I believe this in the way that I hope it's true. And so I'm counting on it. I do believe that God wants to set the world right. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. You know, it's funny. um, Brett has been teaching class on the apostles creed and I love to hear about it. And there are parts of the creed that at different times of my faith journey have been a challenge. But the thing that helped me the most is someone said, well, we say this because that's what we hope. You know what I mean? We hope. We hope that that was a virgin birth because God cared so much for the world that he used a girl to bear God into the world. And so in the same way, I hope in the second coming of Christ and until it comes, I do think we are called to be the faithful and to live into that vision. Not the vision of destruction. The vision of love. Yes. I have a you're saying that this carrot stick thing is is cyclical. Yeah. Because in our political system
1: today in the world, I see fear dominating.
0: Yeah, I mean scary. Fears fear's pretty pervasive, I think, at any given time. And I also kind of want to say when we aren't fearful, maybe it's because we aren't paying attention or because our privilege, uh, protects us from it. Um, but we are called to, even in the midst of fear, to know in some way that Christ is with us, bringing good, loving and caring for us and for all creation. Yeah. But not only does the idea of the carrot and stick like wane and wax over time, but in faith communities, yeah. I mean, um, there are different faith communities who believe that salvation should be brought in a way that has you focus solely on the afterlife and where you're going to be. I cannot read the New Testament without reading Jesus's call to live out his vision right now. And in believing in Christ, I believe that offers me salvation, but I also think it gives us a calling to live out that vision now in good old Huntsville, Alabama. As it is in heaven. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think if you had asked me, you know, like on Monday, If I thought the book of Revelation had any use, I would have been like, I might've gone the way of Martin Luther, but is it not the truth of every faithful person that we live in structures where people are oppressed, where we live in a world that constantly calls us to another way than a life of faithfulness. And isn't it good to know that we can always have hope in Christ, even in the midst of all that. So. I have a new appreciation for it, <laughs> maybe. But you know, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna start. Do you tell Dag I'm not gonna start preaching from it all the time, okay? okay. Tell him this is as good as it gets. Um listening to you know what? I, I, yes? I'm
1: thinking about you know all the images was the to figure out you know, revelation. And that was just so, you know, troublesome and so difficult. And I think about that. Maybe you know the situations that we find ourselves in today. There's war. There's petulance, There's disease. There's I mean, there's famine. You know, we have that. We have what I would call real images that we can focus on, and then believe in the hope. Yeah. That
0: you know, God <clears> takes <talking throat> it. Absolutely, absolutely, it reduces my anxiety greatly. So it's good to talk about and remember. Um, I think what I would like to ask you, is there anything you want to talk about over the next few weeks? I mean, these four ideas came from DAG. Anybody else? (laughs) Anything you want to talk about? Uh, We've covered the biggies. Um, You can slip me an email, but if I don't get direction, we're going to talk about what we consider the essential tenets of the reformed faith. And we're going to start with the idea that God is sovereign and all that that means for us as people of faith. All right. If we, end now I can get another cup of tea in before the next service. So I will say, go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Thank you. Oh, 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 I'm, I'm so sorry. So There is a graphic representation of the book of revelation over there. You can grab, I'm not really into like graphic novels and stuff. So it doesn't work for me, but I also have typed out a really detailed outline. Let me know if you want me to email it to you. Okay. Sorry. Bye.
1: Thank
0: you so much for joining us.
1: Bye. Bye.